0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode 35 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. This week, we're gonna discuss a topic that I think needs to remain relevant in society today. This most recent pandemic has shown a light on some very alarming characteristics of the general public, such as the spreading of misinformation and not taking public health seriously at all. While yes, this pandemic was mild, over six and a half million people died as a result. For this episode, I'm going to compare the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic response with the response to COVID-19. Some of the most eye-opening things that came out of both the 1918 pandemic and this most recent one was how everyone was quick to point fingers and resort to racism in an effort to quell the masses in their own countries instead of instituting strict public health measures to ensure the safety and well-being of their population as a whole. Before we jump right into COVID, let's take a look at the more deadly impact that we as a country faced back in the early 1900s. I want to review just how deadly this pandemic was because I fear another pandemic influenza is right around the corner, and if the response resembles the response to COVID, I fear the safety of everyone. As with COVID-19, influenza disproportionately kills both the young and old due to their weakened immune systems. Since the influenza strain was identified during World War I, many of the Axis powers sought to prevent the flow of negative news to maintain high morale among both the military and general population. While the name of this pandemic influenza is dubbed the Spanish flu, the earliest cases were identified in both France and the United Kingdom. Many officials now believe that this influenza strain began either in the United States or in the United Kingdom and tracks with the United States' entry into World War I. Outbreaks of influenza-like illness were documented in 1916 and 1917 at British military hospitals in France and just across the English Channel in England. Clinical indications in common with the 1918 pandemic included rapid symptom progression to a dusky heliotrope cyanosis of the face. This characteristic blue-violet cyanosis in expiring patients led to the name Purple Death. The Aldershot physicians later wrote in The Lancet, the influenza pneumococcal purulent bronchitis we and others described in 1916 and 1917 as fundamentally the same condition as the influenza of this present pandemic. This purulent bronchitis is not yet linked to the same A-H1N1 virus, but it may be a precursor. In 1918, epidemic influenza, also known at the time as the GRIP, appeared in Kansas and the United States during late spring, and early reports from Spain began appearing on May 21st. Reports from both places called it three-day fever. Now, here is where we can begin to look at some of the comparisons to this response to the pandemic influenza and with COVID-19. During World War I, Spain remained neutral and did not censor their newspapers similar to how belligerent governments did. Whether it was an insult against a neutral nation or simple ignorance, this is how the wave of pandemic influenza came to be named. The outbreak did not originate in Spain, but reporting did. Due to wartime censorship in belligerent nations, Spain was a neutral country, unconcerned with appearances of combat readiness and without a wartime propaganda machine to prop up morale so its newspaper freely reported epidemic effects, including King Alfonso VIII's illness, making Spain the apparent locus of the epidemic. The censorship was so effective that Spain's health officials were unaware its neighboring countries were similarly affected. In an October 1918 Madrid letter to the Journal of the American Medical Association, a Spanish official protested, We were surprised to learn that the disease was making ravages in other countries, and that people there were calling it the Spanish Grip. And were for Spanish. This epidemic was not born in Spain, and this should be recorded as a historic vindication. But before this letter could be published, the Serbian newspaper Corfu said, "...various countries have been assigning the origin of its imposing guests to each other for quite some time, and at one point in time they agreed to assign its origin to the kind and neutral Spain." As we shift focus to COVID-19, the administration in charge at the time when COVID-19 had just been identified, decided to resort to racism, calling COVID-19 the China flu or Kung flu instead of offering any assistance. In fact, following Trump's use of the Chinese virus tweet that he shared on March 16, 2020, there was an increase in both anti-Asian sentiments and an increase in hate crimes. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has documented a 77% increase from 2019 to 2020 in hate crimes against Asian people living in the United States, And during the period from March 2020 to June 2021, more than 9,000 anti-Asian hate incidents were self-reported to the advocacy group Stop AAPI Hate. Yet, such crime statistics are likely vastly underreported. Meanwhile, profound research gaps hinder broader understanding about violence and racism affecting the Asian American community. Shifting back now to the Spanish influenza, there had been cases identified in the United States before the official date announced by the U.S. government. This shows a true lack of responsibility on our country's part. It doesn't matter where it started, all that matters is that we present the most accurate facts to the public to ensure adequate measures are taken in a timely manner. This strain of influenza is marked as having started at Camp Funston, Kansas on March 4, 1918. In actuality, cases were actually identified over 200 miles away in Haskell County as early as January 1918. The pandemic is conventionally marked as having begun on March 4, 1918 with the recording of the case of Albert Gitchell, an army cook at Camp Funston in Kansas, United States despite their having cases been before him. The disease had already been observed 200 miles away in Haskell County as early as January 1918, prompting local doctor Lorraine Minor to warn the editors of the U.S. Public Health Services academic journal, Public Health Reports, within days of the March 4th first case at Camp Funston. 522 men at the camp had reported sick. By March 11th, 1918, the virus had reached Queens, New York. Failure to take preventative measures in March and April was later criticized. Sound familiar? As COVID-19 landed here in the United States, the Trump administration further fueled false news such as reporting that the virus would simply burn itself out by summer or that it was a mild flu. Neither of those reports were correct and only allowed the virus to spread faster throughout the country. The delay to establish standard public health mandates is one of the greatest failures to the people of this country. Instead of doing so after several recommendations by all federal public health agencies, Trump and his team instead mocked those who chose to wear this basic public health measure. In my opinion, this is where the strict divide between those who care for this country and those who could care less for those around them started. During public health appearances, he has falsely claimed that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that 85% of mask wearers eventually contract the coronavirus, despite the fact that the study reference did not even investigate this question. On occasion, the former president has refused to wear a mask, implicitly encouraging others to do the same in places where state governments required people to wear masks to protect public health. Other Trump administration officials, including Vice President Mike Pence, have also not worn masks in places where masks are required. Pence also promoted a Trump campaign event where attendees did not adhere to state guidelines on masks. In October 2020, an advisor to former President Trump stated without evidence that masks do not help contain the spread of COVID-19 in a post that Twitter later blocked for violating its policy against sharing virus-related misinformation. This behavior has contributed to mask wearing being a uniquely political issue in the United States. Many in Congress and among the general public often refused to wear masks, notwithstanding research showing wearing face masks reduced the spread of the coronavirus. During the pandemic influenza in 1918, there were anti-masks leagues that stoked division amongst the population. The masks were called muzzles, germ shields, and dirt traps. They gave people a pig-like snout. Some people snipped holes in their masks to smoke cigars, others fastened them to dogs in mockery, and bandits used them to rob banks. More than a century ago, as the 1918 pandemic influenza raged in the United States, masks of gauze and cheesecloth became the facial front lines in the battle against the virus. But, as they have now, the masks also stoked political division. Then, as now, medical authorities urged the wearing of masks to help slow the spread of disease. And then, as now, some people resisted. In 1919 and 1918, as bars, saloons, restaurants, theaters, and schools were closed, Masks became a scapegoat, a symbol of government overreach, inspiring protests, petitions and defiant barefaced gatherings. All the while, thousands of Americans were dying in a deadly pandemic. Masks were truly one of the only ways to prevent the spread of infection during this period, while medicine was still in its infancy and no medicines existed to combat the infection once a person contracted it. As you've heard up to this point, the response to both pandemics follows almost the same cadence. However, with COVID-19, modern medicine and therapies exist to help those cope with infections and include respiratory support, fluid management, and necessary ventilatory support. The fact that we have all of this scientific data to support smarter, fact-based decisions to combat a deadly virus was ignored completely in the early days completely blows my mind. The federal government should have been a beacon for support, offering states unlimited medical resources enacting a public health emergency early on and activating the Defense Production Act to ensure hospitals and the public had access to effective face coverings, integral medical equipment such as ventilators, moisture gowns, and other basic medical items that were scarce during the early days of the pandemic. During the influenza pandemic, hospitals faced unprecedented surges and ultimately were crippled. Due to no medicinal remedies existing at the time, the ability for healthcare professionals to treat the rapidly spreading influenza was incredibly challenging. Hospitals were crippled by influenza's hold on urban populations. The bulwarks of healthcare took extraordinary steps to serve their communities. Hospitals lengthened staff hours, assigned student nurses and doctors full duties, discharged the least ill, and accepted only urgent admissions. Hallways, offices, porch, and tents housed in excess of patients. Some hospitals had to turn people away. Shortages of basic supplies such as linens, mattresses, bedpans, and gowns arose in some instances. Gymnasiums, state armories, parish halls, and other facilities were fashioned into warehouses of beds for the ill. One of the only ways that the public could prevent the spread of this influenza was to stay at home. You'll notice a lot of similarities to how the government reacted both during the 1918 and 2020 pandemic, by initiating bans on public gatherings, instituting social distancing, and establishing a mask mandate. However, as with COVID-19, this pandemic influenza occurred at a time when modern media was taking shape and the Great War was dominating the headlines newspaper companies quickly learned that chaos, sickness, and death sold newspapers. When we review efforts undertaken by the World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control, and National Institutes of Health, the Trump administration actively attacked those organizations for attempting to share science-based facts, which included updated guidance on mask-wearing, limiting social gatherings, and sanitation guidelines. However, He would praise alternate news outlets for providing incredibly false information such as the use of horse dewormer to cure covid or that natural immunity is stronger than a vaccine that has been tested to be effective and viable yet these science-based announcements were deemed false news at a time when we needed a federal government to lead us through extraordinary times states were forced to take measures into their own hands to ensure the safety of both healthcare workers and the general population. During the 1918 pandemic, many news sources were censored to ensure morale was not impacted and for the enemy to not know that their opponent was collapsing internally. During COVID-19, hospitals suffered much similarly. Healthcare workers faced extraordinary challenges in the face of this unknown virus. Even before the pandemic started in 2020, hospitals face dangerous levels of staffing due in part to inadequate compensation, mental and physical burnout, and just an overall loss of satisfaction in the face of patient care. According to the Surgeon General, there is expected to be a shortage of 140,000 physicians in the United States alone by 2033. Healthcare worker burnout not only harms individual workers but also threatens the nation's public health infrastructure. Already Americans are feeling the impact of staffing shortages across the healthcare system in hospitals primary care clinics, and public health departments. With over half a million registered nurses anticipated to retire by the end of 2022, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projects the need for 1.1 million new registered nurses across the U.S. Further, within the next five years, the country faces a projected national shortage of more than 3 million low-wage health workers. The Association of American Medical Colleges projects that physician demand will continue to grow faster than supply leading to a shortage of up to 139,000 physicians by 2033, with the most alarming gaps occurring in primary care. Healthcare worker burnout affects the public's ability to get routine preventative and emergency care and our country's ability to respond to public health emergencies. When COVID landed in the United States, it impacted the already fragile healthcare infrastructure with devastating effect. Healthcare workers weren't ready, nor were the administrators that were supposed to support these vital members of our society. Crisis care standards had to be activated in many large hospitals due mainly in part to a shortage of staff, medical supplies, and therapies that existed to support those who contracted the virus. For those unfamiliar with what crisis care standards are, this is defined as a substantial change in usual health care operations and the level of care it is possible to deliver which is made necessary by a pervasive or catastrophic disaster. This change in the level of care delivered is justified by specific circumstances and is formally declared by a state government and recognition that crisis operations will be in effect for a sustained period. The formal declaration that crisis standards of care are in operation enables specific legal and regulatory powers and protections for healthcare providers and the necessary tasks of allocating and using scarce medical resources and implementing alternate care facility operations. While sick patients were not turned away during each of the COVID variant waves, many had to wait increasingly long times and forgo elective procedures that would have typically been completed in a timely manner. During these incredible surges, healthcare workers were forced to resort to these crisis care standards, which meant that if Billy Joe went in for a broken toe or a hernia repair, he would more than likely either not receive care or end up waiting days for that care. When our healthcare system struggles like this, there is something inherently wrong. When we can't even provide our healthcare infrastructure with the materials that they need to ensure that they are safe, then I truly fear if our healthcare infrastructure could even meet the needs of patients if the next pandemic is that of a far deadlier pathogen. This was a dry run for the worst case scenario in my eyes. I truly believe that we as a global population got lucky I don't mean to diminish those who lost their lives or dealt with this virus, but it should have been an immediate wake-up call when not even hospital staff had access to fresh PPE or the ability to step away for a mental health break amidst the chaos. I read one paper stating that the COVID pandemic was simply a mass casualty incident in slow motion, and I believe that sums it up perfectly. Hospitals and the workers that risk their lives every day on the front lines were not supported during this pandemic and most times were criticized for the work they were doing. When you look at the pandemic influenza back in 1918, that was the worst case scenario, a highly virulent influenza that spread via airborne secretions from person to person. Once again, you're gonna notice some very similar leanings from those who held the majority of the wealth in larger cities during the pandemic influenza and their hesitancy to support the implementation of sweeping closures of public gathering places, factories, and offices. Business tycoons were scared that the economy would take an impact and lobbied to implement staggered opening times to ensure mass transit would not be fully overcrowded. Drastically different methods were taken during the pandemic influenza. For example, when the public health director for Philadelphia, who at the time was a political appointee, insisted on holding a parade through the streets of the city in an effort to raise money for the American war effort, this would only kickstart the wildfire. Cruson insisted that the parade must go on, since it would raise millions of dollars in war bonds, and he played down the danger of spreading the disease. On September 28th, a patriotic procession of soldiers, boy scouts, marching bands, and local dignitaries stretched two miles through downtown Philadelphia, with sidewalks packed with over 200,000 spectators. Just 72 hours after the parade, all 31 of Philadelphia's hospitals were full and 2,600 people were dead by the end of the week. The public health response in St. Louis couldn't have been more different. Even before the first case of Spanish flu had been reported in the city, Health Commissioner Dr. Max Starkloff had local physicians on high alert and wrote an editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about the importance of avoiding crowds. When a flu outbreak at a nearby military barracks first spread into St. Louis' civilian population, Starkloff wasted no time closing the schools, shuttering movie theaters and pool halls, and banning all public gatherings. There was pushback from business owners, but Starkloff and the mayor held their ground. When infections swelled as expected, thousands of sick residents were treated at home by a network of volunteer nurses. Danner says that because of these precautions, St. Louis public health officials were able to flatten the curve and keep the flu epidemic from exploding overnight as it did in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, the United States did not learn its lesson moving out of the pandemic influenza in 1918. Many of the same beliefs that anti-mask leaks held still exist today. The United States remains the only developed nation that was affected so negatively by the COVID pandemic. Many countries have been pummeled by the coronavirus, but few have fared as poorly as the US. Its death rate surpassed that of any other large, wealthy nation, especially during the recent Omicron surge. The Biden administration placed all its bets on a vaccine-focused strategy, rather than the multi-layered protections that many experts called for, even as America lagged behind other wealthy countries in vaccinating and boosting its citizens, especially elderly people, who are the most vulnerable to the virus. In a study of 29 high-income countries, the US experienced the largest decline in life expectancy in 2020, and unlike much of Europe, did not bounce back in 2021. It was also the only country whose lowered lifespan was driven mainly by deaths among people under 60. Dying from COVID robbed each American of about a decade of life on average. As a whole, US life expectancy fell by two years, the largest such decline in almost a century. Neither World War II nor any of the flu pandemics that followed it dented American longevity so badly. Drastic changes need to take place before the next pandemic either originates here or lands on the shores of the United States. If the next response goes as poorly as this, we are in for a ride that you won't leave with a smile on your face. I urge those that have thought this latest pandemic was a farce to educate yourselves on just how deadly these novel viruses can truly be. I promise you that in some point in the near future, the world will face an illness far more devastating than COVID. Thank you for listening this week. I am truly thankful for you, my audience. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please give it a 5-star rating and feel free to leave a review. I continue to produce the show by myself, so I am 100% open to any constructive criticism. As we gear up for the Halloween season, look out for a special episode in the coming weeks. It's generally a bit more fictitious, but still includes important information should you like to plan. Until next time, this has been Destination Disaster.